Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Marketing in Times of Recovery. It's the built environment marketing podcast hosted by me, Iowa Bass from Abbas Marketing. Abbas Marketing is a marketing consultancy that works with engineers and architects to bridge the gap between their business strategy and what they do in terms of marketing on the ground. You can find out more about my work and what I get up to at www.abbasmarketing.com. Anyone who knows me knows that I do love engineers and engineering in general. Actually, way more than I actually love architecture, the truth be known. So today's interview is a bit of an engineering marketing fest with Chris Moore, who leads the marketing and communications at Price & Myers. He's also part of the Build Up Built Environment Networking Group that I'm on the committee on as well. So we also know each other from there. It's an awesome conversation, which I hope you're really going to enjoy. We look at the importance of brand and tone of voice, how to help a firm with over 40 years of history be cool and brave, and also we look at the challenge that engineers face in terms of, I guess, raising their profile and rising up in terms of communications and owning their I guess, share of voice in all the big issues that are facing the world at the moment. And of course, if you do like the show, don't forget that you can help us to spread the word by talking to people that you know about the show, saying what you like about it, sharing stuff on social media, or if you really, really want to support us, leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. Anyway, so let's go on and hear the conversation with Chris. Enjoy. Hi, Chris. Uh, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Can you give me a brief intro to you and your role at Price & Myers? I certainly can. Ayo. Thank you very much for having me. Um, my name is Chris Moore. I have a background in journalism, I'm starting off in Australia, as you might be able to tell from my accent. I started out working for Rupert Murdoch a long time ago covering court and sport and council reporting um, for local newspapers in Melbourne. And after leaving the world of local reporting, I commenced with a magazine publishing company that included a number of different titles um, that were available on the newsstands at the time. Some of them still are. Um, I started off writing advertorial, sort of written copy that looks like editorial, but it's actually paid for. Um, you know, not necessarily the most ethical of things to be doing, but you know, you've got to get a start somewhere, don't you? I was going to say, wait, probably says like add somewhere really small in the corner or promote Yeah, yeah. On, uh, stuff that was made to look <laughs> like written copy, like editorial, but was actually, you know, you had to say nice things about the client and nice things about the product. So that's, that's sort of how I got rolling. Yeah. Um, and then I, I left the world of uh, magazine publishing after I sort of, um, I, I wrote some advertorial about things like taps and tables and furniture and windows and things like that. And <gasps> I didn't really know anything about any of these things. So I started ringing up architects and sort of saying, you know, what do you, what do you look for in a tap? What do you look for in a window? And um, you know, <laughs> There's what, a lot, what makes, isn't there? There's it's a lot. A window. Is it called fenestration? That's fenestration. Absolutely <laughs> right. I, I learned words like fenestration and clerestory and things like that, you know. Who? Clerestory is like when the windows are right at the top of the wall that sort of run along the run along the roof line on the top of a wall. Um, that's called clerestory fenestration. So there you go. <laughs> I'm not going to ask how you spell it, but <laughs> I've never heard of that. But there you go. You've outdone me on the window knowledge. There you well go. Done. You can Google that afterwards. Um, <laughs> so, to, so I talked to a lot of architects, you know, in that part of my job, and then I sort of got to know a lot of them. And then I actually sort of swung over to start working in the editorial department on a number of different titles um, in Melbourne at um, Architecture Media. And, yeah. uh, you know, after uh, working there for probably, I don't know, seven or eight years or something like that, 
I um I would talk to a lot of architects and people would say, you know, oh well, I would say to them, you know, well, I know you need better photography or you need an angle or what's the, you know, how are you going to pitch this and, you know, what's even things that we were talking about sustainability back in those days even and yeah, you know, eventually I had one architect say, well, you, look, you tell me what to do all the time, but why don't you come and actually work for my practice and and sort of do it for me, um, and that was sort of how I moved out of publishing and into communications on the sort of practice side with an architect firstly. Yeah. And then not too long after that, I transferred to London with my lovely wife and uh, I got a job working for Max Fordham with the, um, the, Never rather, heard of the, the, <laughs> the rather esteemed <laughs> environmental engineers. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, I, and uh, Max uh, passed away at the start of this year, unfortunately, but um, God bless him. He was not just a lovely man. He was an absolute genius. Um, and so I worked for Max Fordham for a while, for about seven years or so. Uh, they did a lot of work with Price and Myers, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah, Max, Max and Sam and Robert were all friends back in the day. I have to um, say, there was a whole group of them, wasn't there? There was like AKT2, the AKT, the original AKT, wasn't there? There was like Connersby, Baxters. Like there was a whole group of engineers from that era, wasn't it? All around the late 70s. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Robert and Sam, actually, um, they were, they were worked, they started off working, they met at Arab Associates back in the sort of late 60s, yeah. early 70s. Um, Robert actually um, interviewed Sam to give him you know, to give Sam his job and Sam got the job, obviously, at Arab. And then they became <laughs> friends, started working together. They knew Max, the um, Alan Baxter. They when when Sam and Robert were talking about going out on their own, they bumped into Alan Baxter in Charlotte Street in Fitzrovia and uh just the home of engineering for a very yeah, long time. Yeah, wasn't it? Absolutely yeah. right, you know, all down there in Denmark Street, what have you. And um uh, Alan sort of offered them a little bit of space in the in his uh, his studio and said, Well you can work, you know, sort of four days for me and two days for yourselves and sort of, you know, or something like that. So Sam yeah. will ring me up after this and say, no, no, that's not right. Um, but it was, it was something like that anyway. And, uh, yeah, and so that's how Price and Myers got started. And uh, as, as I say, I, I sort of – I was at Max Fordham for about seven years. I spent a couple of years at Fletcher Priest Architects and then um, I was approached to join on at Price and Myers. And here we are. So you started your role in April 2020. Oh, every time I think of 2020, my, my, my whole kind of body goes, lockdown, lockdown one, the scary one. Um, so what's it like to start an engineering practice a month after we were in lockdown? Oh, actually, funnily enough, I, I actually joined on the 18th of March, um, not April. So I, oh. I, had, I had one day in the studio, which was a Thursday. And then yeah. Sadiq, Khan, Sadiq Khan says, you know, don't catch the tube tomorrow. Um, the Friday, and then by Monday we were all working at home. So I had I had to get to know the practice and all my new colleagues over Zoom and Teams. You know, it was challenging. I was going to um, say, and what was your kind of priority then? What did you? What was the biggest kind of challenge you had at that point? What did you have to do? What was your scramble? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, the the biggest challenge from a marketing point of view, um, you know, in in sort of joining a practice at that time was was the compensating for the lack of human face-to-face contact um, or at least the sporadic nature of it. You know, businesses like engineering, like architecture, even law and finance, you know, essentially we're, we're brand companies and mm. uh, you, you don't go in and just buy something off the rack and you, know, you, sort of, you can't try it on for size, you can't take it for a test drive. So every project we undertake is bespoke. It's a one-off work. It's complex, requires investment of all different sorts. 
um, and the people we work with, our clients, you know, architects, collaborators, they like working with us based on previous experience with us or our reputation. And, you know, sort of for all of the all of the websites and the, the brochures and the social media and all those sorts of things, um, there's nothing better than the personal relationships. So that's yeah. both within the, within the practice and without the practice outside. So when I joined on the 18th of March and then was quickly sort of sent home, um, you know, it was kind of compensating for that the lack of the the face to face that 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 wins the day. Um, so yeah, so the last two years is, uh, you know, I think there's still some reticence to get back in front of people, if I'm honest, from some quarters. But I think you know, there is, yeah, yeah, I think definitely. I think there is. I think there's. I think I think it has changed forever. I think it's going to get back, but I think it's going to be slightly different. I think it is going to be slightly different, but at the end of the day, business is a, is a contact sport and you know and we do have to sort of force ourselves off the zoom and into the room we've got to we've got to get back to the face-to-face stuff where if we can off the zoom, off the zoom and into the room you can have that printed on a t-shirt eh, if you'd like to. i might i might get you one for christmas um <laughs> into the room there you go could be a brand though as well it works yeah, yeah. so um I'm going to go to your kind of website so one of the things you did in lockdown was actually redo your website and how was that and, and where did you start from? Well, we didn't We didn't actually redo the entire website. Um, uh, the team uh, that I mostly uh, still have working with me at the moment, they sort of got they yeah. got it rolling and, and rolled out the visual um, the visuals of the website and the, the sort of brand identity in, in that sense. But, but what we did, um, first of all, internally, was to really sort of Try and figure out. You, you know, you've got people that are all of a sudden spread to the the four corners. They're all working from home, um, and the you know uh, the business gets a little bit loose in the stays. I'm sure we're not we weren't the only ones to sort of go through mm-hmm. that, but sort of people feeling a little bit isolated, a little bit cut off, and it gave the partners at Price and Myers the opportunity to sort of say, well, you know, who who are we? What do we believe in? What makes us different? Um, and so that sort of started the internal conversation. Uh, and we did, you know, we did, had lots of conversations with town halls and surveys and things like that yeah. about, for want of a better expression of vision and values um, kind of kind of project. And so that ended up with us sort of, you know, trying to articulate exactly who we are and, and what does make us different. And we think, you know, in many ways, um, you know, expresses our competitive advantage as well. But just that we're, you know, who we are as a group of people and what what values we share. And so from that came a lot of the copy that ended up on the website. And, um, you know, we sort of thought to ourselves, well, there's things that we're talking about ourselves to ourselves, but we're actually really proud of a lot of this and we have yeah. no no sort of uh, reluctance to tell the world. So we, we put a, added a page to the website and everyone's free to sort of find out what Price and Myers is about. And I, as I said just before, um, I did log, I did have a good look at your website earlier and your About Us page is like, it's a masterclass in writing. So like as a marketer, <laughs> I sort of look at it and I'm like, oh my gosh, how have you managed to kind of, I guess it's it's normal language as well. It's how people talk. It's like, this is who we are. And, you know, even including, you know, the fact that, you know, not everybody wanted to go through the whole consultation process to get the tone of voice right and things like that. And I think those are the challenges we all face as marketers. And that's, people don't necessarily, you know, I'm here to engineer. Why am I here to kind of participate in a values conversation? But actually, I guess I always see a tone of voice as being a strategic piece that actually can inform all of your business and getting those and getting that story right will inform your engineers, how you communicate with your clients, how you collaborate with people, how you explain what your firm does, how you, how you even convey your engineering. And I think people don't realize that. 
I think that's absolutely true. I, I think that um, people, particularly engineers, actually in my in my experience professionally, you know, engineers. Um, I think that architects have got an advantage because when they go through university, they do the crits and they spend a lot of time talking about their work and a lot of time explaining their work. Um, you yeah. know, to people who are not, sometimes not going to be very kind to them, they really have to sort of justify. <laughs> you know, in in front of some stern lecturer or tutor, they have to sort of justify their work. And yeah. I think that en- engineers can go all the way through their education and, and not necessarily spend a lot of time talking about their work or talking about themselves. And they can be a little bit uncomfortable um, with even the notion of tone of voice. They, pref- you know, In my experience, a lot of engineers prefer a more sort of academic, informational way of, of writing and it's speaking. Factual. It's right and it's wrong. It's, it's exactly it, right. right. It's like it's an engineering... <laughs> That's it. The switch is on, the switch is off. You know, things are black and white, you know, they're one or the other and that's that. And so one of the things that I always try to encourage, you know, whenever, whoever I work with is to sort of, if you can arrive at that tone of voice where your audience and they're reading something, um, as they usually are when when you're talking about tone of voice, that they can actually hear that voice coming off the page or out of the website or, you know, whatever, you know, in the quotes or whatever. Um, it just resonates and it's more human and it's more conversational. And that was exactly one of the things that sort of came from this project that we did when I started was really just about sort of saying, yeah, how do we want to sound? Um, you know, we want to we, 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 this is not how we talk. So why don't we write <laughs> like we talk a little bit more, yeah. you know? And, and so that, that's how that sort of came about. And I'm, I'm really quite pleased that you like it. That makes me very happy. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I do actually invite people on whose stuff I really like, and it's not a lie. So it's like, when I'm like, I really love this, it's like, I really do love it. But um, I mean, also, I, I think the interesting thing about engineers is that actually a lot of them are really down to earth. I find personally, I find engineers more down to earth than architects, right? And if we could get the tone of right, the voice right for engineers, I think it would unlock so much more for the industry because yeah. I think. There was, you know, I know literally hundreds and hundreds of amazing engineers, and you just think, actually, if we get the tone of voice right and we start talking to people in the normal language, it could really clean up in a completely that, different way. And there's so many challenges that we can solve around the, you know, around society. That's true. And again, it comes back to engagement, right? And I think that, again, with architects, and don't get me wrong, you know, some of my best friends are architects. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, I, I've, I've always said that if architects could get the jargon out of, you know, it's, architects come, yeah. sometimes employ jargon to make themselves sound more exclusive. And, you know, again, you know, I've worked at Fletcher Priest, I've worked at Hayball in Melbourne, I've worked with architects over the course of my life in publishing. And just like, Explain it to me like I'm a nine-year-old kind of thing, you know. That just that strip it back to you know. Um, there's a movement I can't remember what they call it now, basic English or understandable English or something like that. Yeah. And it's just about you know, give us clarity. And and as as communicators, of course, that's what we we you and I and people like us are always striving for. And I think engineering, as I say, the light has been under the bushel for a long time. They they don't tend to write or speak emotionally about their work, and I really really think they should. And I think now more than ever because you know we're we're facing a moral environmental challenge that's bordering on catastrophe, and yeah. we actually really need to make sure that engineers are heard. Um, it's 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 utterly essential for our future. Well, they're going to be solving a lot of the problems, aren't they? Yeah, let's be honest. They're going to yep. be the ones that will be doing that. So, yeah, yeah. definitely. I think, and, and you're right. I've done a lot of kind of net zero work for WSP actually, and you're right getting those stories and making them so that they kind of resonate with people 
And that's got to be the key challenge. If you want to get near zero achieved, if you want to, all of these challenges are not going to happen otherwise. It's, it's they're massive issues. Yeah, so, yeah, and and none of us can do it on our own. We we need to engage with people, everyone from you know the prime minister to to Joe Public, um, and and you know everyone in between. Engineers can't solve this problem. Business can't solve this problem. The public can't solve this problem. We all need to get on board. And, and I think that sort of good storytelling is is central to getting as many people on board as we can. Fantastic. So at Price & Myers, how do you approach the marketing for the practice? What, what do you tend to do overall? Well, um, I, look, I think in essence, I'm even though I'm a trained journalist and that's my background, I, I am sort of a brand guy, really. Um, anyone who knows me can just listen to me crap on about <laughs> brand forever. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, I, I've always considered brand to be the sort of oxygen for a business, particularly for you know professional services business businesses like ours. Um, and you know, and the the sort of the foundations of of my approach to marketing is all about storytelling, and it's exactly what we came back to then, just talking about tone of voice and engagement and yeah. getting the stories across, um, and using the brand to support all the other aspects of the business development. Um, there's a guy, uh, a guy called Michael Eisner, who I don't know if you know him, but um, he's a he's an American businessman. He's the former CEO of Disney Corporation, and if you're a football fan, he's also the owner of Portsmouth FC at the moment. Um, huge club, a huge club. Well, you know, a club, <laughs> a club down yeah. on their luck, but an important <laughs> club. I hope that you know. I hope there's not too many Portsmouth FC fans listening, but yes, hundreds who listen to the show. Obviously, I'm sure. It's, I'm sure it's very popular on the south coast. Um, but Michael Eisner said that that brand was made up of a thousand gestures, um, and that's an approach I subscribe to. That yes, you know, brand is everything. Yes, it's the logo yeah. type. Of course, it is. It's the colour scheme. It's our storytelling. It's the website. It's how you answer the phone. It's what reception looks like when your visitors come to. Um, come to your uh, offices, um, you know, how you appear in the media, what events you're associated with. And it's all those little things, all of those elements of brand that help establish the personal and face-to-face interactions that I was sort of talking about earlier on that, you know, that was the big challenge for me two years ago. So if I can help my team um, and I can give them a brand that represents them, again, you know, much of what we've been talking about today yeah um that they can believe in and that they can tell the stories and they can get out and advocate for our business and advocate for our work and our colleagues and our clients and collaborators um then that sort of helps us stay a step ahead of the competition i think um and you know and then once you've sort of got those fundamental foundation stones in place it's it's rinse repeat and record you know it's um Mm. it's keep track of what you're doing keep doing the good stuff learn from what doesn't work learn from what does work do Less of the former, more of the latter, and and that. So that's that's my approach to marketing overall. Um, that's you know right. what it centres on. Yeah. So what? So what is working at the moment? Um. Well, I think one of the things that we that we were really blessed with when well, I was really blessed with when I began two years ago was that we just finished working with the University of Cambridge to develop the parametric and numeric design assessment tool. You may know it as Panda. Um, snazzy. Uh, very snazzy. Yeah, we thought long and hard about that. I, I, I can't take any credit for the creation of that beautiful acronym, but the engineers did sort of say, we're thinking of calling it Panda. What do you reckon? I'm like, that's great. That's all I need. Yeah, anything. Let's go with that. Rather than the full title, that's a million words. Let's be exactly right. Let's just do it. You know, what? how, how very convenient. Yeah. Um, but it really is a bit of um, game 
game-changing software, and it's. Uh, I mean, and I, I know there's a fair bit of tech kit out there at the moment, but this is this is sort of something a little bit different and a step above. And it really um, has the capacity at sort of concept design stage to strip out up to forty percent of embodied carbon. Um, it's massive, you know, yeah. Massive, and and not just on sort of two or three design proposals, but like a thousand different design options. Mm-hmm. So. We had this bit of kit. I turned up and they sort of said, well, how are we going to market that? And I said, well, you know, software is always a little bit of a challenge because obviously it's, you know, uh, again, you can't take it out for a test drive. You, you don't really sort of show it to anybody. And, and free I must trial. Say that, yeah, yeah, free trial, that sort of thing. Um, and, and Panda isn't, you know, Panda is not the sexiest bit of user interface, I will say as well. So, you know, yeah. it's very much about doing a certain job and doing it really, really well. So um, we sort of took the view that we would create an animated film to help support the promotion of the software. Um, and I don't know if you want the long story or the short story, but um, it, it, you know, we sort of I wrote a script and a storyboard. I got a, a great friend of mine, Amy Bedford, um, who works for PALS, which are a sort of um, communications and brand agency, um, maybe a competitor of yours, AO. So I'm not sure if you want to edit this bit out. No, but, yeah, um, absolutely fine. Okay. <laughs> So um, and so, Amy and I, Amy, um, you know, uh, got a panel of voice artists and mu- mu- sort of um, stock music, and we we worked really hard, and we put this. It's about two minutes um, to explain Panda, and I think one of the things that was interesting for me from a strategic point of view was, yes, we wanted this to be on our website, and we wanted it to be on the Vimeo channel, and for the people, you know, to be able to go on and uh, see the video and watch, you know, how Panda actually works. But we also mm. wanted it to do a job in the boardroom. So that you know, when our team are going out and they're presenting the practice and they're presenting, they're talking about Panda, that they could actually play this in the boardroom. And when I was kind of deciding about, you know, coming back to tone of voice again, you know, that recognition that even still in you know this stage of the 21st century, that an overwhelming majority of you know those sort of boardroom conversations are still middle-aged white men, senior managers, yeah. um, English as a first language, you know, whatever. Um, so I wanted to sort of bring something that would kind of leap out a little bit more um, from a, from a, a sort of tone of voice brand perspective. And one of the voice artists that we managed to locate, um, terrific uh, voice artist from Preston, and so she gave the voiceover for us. And it's this, and you know, and I've seen it work. You sort of sit there, and on, <laughs> on comes this, on comes this. And I, unfortunately, I don't know the, a the panda from name, Preston. A panda from Preston with this, you know, this lovely accent. <laughs> And um, she's very, very good. And I've seen people sort of – and, in fact, one person actually afterwards who was from Liverpool, and he was like, oh, look, you don't hear you – know, where's where she from? I said, she's from Preston. So you don't hear a lot of non-London accents in these kinds of conversations. That's so it was a really, really nice good to, idea. to have yeah. that sort of leap out. Um, so, long story short, Panda's been really good for us in terms of uh, a tool that sort of gets our foot in the door. It's been really good for promoting the software itself, but also yeah. from a more face-to-face, one-to-one, three-to-three, practice-to-practice presentation style of thing, we can say, hey, we've got this you know, amazing bit of software kit that'll help change the world. Um, can we come and talk mm-hmm. to you? And, that, and then that gets our, our client relationships up and running and, and uh, in further entrenched, which is great. That's amazing that actually you found a way to harness and use that tool. Because I think that's the thing is actually to take it in, because you want it to be used ultimately, don't you? And it's yeah. like, showing it to people and getting them infused and finding an interesting way to show it. I think that's what we're going to do with, with a lot of these things to 
to get them to get traction as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's been a really great thing. Um, we've got some case study projects coming up where, where, you know, we say up to 40% and we can do that in theory, but we have actually got a couple of examples where we've got sort of 31%, 29% savings in embodied carbon. And Panda has been so successful, and I don't think I'm talking out of school. I'll have to check this with the partners when I when I, I get off this call. But um, a, a separate company has been set up, and Panda is going to be sort of licensed through a Panda, Price and Myers, Cambridge University, um, a sort of auxiliary yeah, cool. company. Yeah. yeah, to sort of get it because we want it around the world. It's got it's got so much power to be really, really influential. So we want to get it into the hands of as many people as possible. Wow, sounds amazing. Yeah. So. With, a, uh, I guess, a, a brand and a company like Price and Myers, I mean, how do you think that brand has evolved over the years? Because it has, like, I mean, it's almost as old as me. Okay, I'm one year <laughs> older than them. So, so, no, you were giving yourself like, away there. I was like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm one year older than Price and Myers, so obviously a fine vintage. But how has the kind of brand evolved over the years? Or, or I mean, do you look back, do they have, like, an archive? I don't know. Question. <laughs> we don't have an archive, no. I mean, it's a, it is a really interesting question, and it's an interesting one for me as well. I, I'm considerably older than than Price and Myers. I'm not just one year older. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm in the decade beforehand, so um, I'm considerably older. But I think it's even in the last two years has been really interesting. Um, you know, it's a as you say, it's a 45 year old practice. It's you know has a well established and a very very good reputation. Um, yeah. you know, Sam, Sam Price and Robert Myers are no longer involved in the day-to-day. And in recent years, you've also seen like a cohort of partners retire, you know, that sort of group of, of people that Sam and Robert hired in the 80s and 90s. Mm. Um, they've, sort of, they've sort of retired and, and moved on as well. So there's a changing of the guard um, to some extent. Um, and one of the things that was really evident when I arrived two years ago was that there was still, you know, there is still the preponderance of middle-aged white man men in in senior management. And I, you know, I, I understand the irony being a middle-aged white man myself. <laughs> um, so, so I, you know, I, I, I say these things uh, advisedly. Yeah. Um, but in the in the last two years, we've made a really concerted effort to better represent the communities that we're working in, the communities that that we live in. Um, and we've done things like um, redact CVs for, for some roles, um, limit to you sort of limit and remove unconscious bias, redacting names, addresses, even universities and education providers, which I thought was you know sort of really bold. Um, before those CVs are passed on to the hiring manager, so that's led in the first instance to a broader group of interviewees, obviously, and that has yeah. translated into a more diverse in- intake of. Um, you know, new engineers, technicians, and business support people. So, what I think you're seeing is a transformation, gradual though it is at the moment, of a brand that was old school. You know, the proverbial safe pair of hands, inventive and really interesting, but you yeah. know, um, more representative of a, a sort of a, a bygone British engineering education system. Um, and it's transforming into a more dynamic, more forward-looking and, and more agile business. And as I say, one that sort of better represents the, the diversity of the cultures and, and the diversity of thought of the contemporary profession. Um, we're not there yet, of course. Um, but you're sort working of a long towards way it. To go. We're working <laughs> towards it. But, but from a brand point of view, it really does feel like a fulcrum point. Um, and, you know, we've got, as I say, a practice that can build on an exceptional reputation with an exciting bunch of young engineers led by a group of 
you know, partners and associates. And I say middle-aged, I mean, there, there are partners um, younger than me uh, in the partnership and, and the associates <laughs> yeah. are a really sort of dynamic bunch of people in their 30s and 40s. And, and um, you know, we, can, we sort of draw strength from, from that uh, increasing diversity. So, you know, I, I, I think it is an interesting time. I came on board two years ago. The mm. partners gave me a, a two-word brief when I, when I began, which I loved. And they said, we're looking for cool and brave. Cool. And I remember, yes, <laughs> exactly, right? Me. Just had to go, me. Pardon. No, did you not stand there and just go, pardon me? <laughs> <laughs> like... No, I kept up a brave face, but all the while I was sitting there thinking, go, I have you... no idea how to do cool. What would I know about cool? <laughs> you know? I've been told when my seven-year-old, I'm not cool. He no, uses words c- like, mum, that was hilarious. And I'm like, what? He goes, well, that means hilarious. That's what no. me and my friends say. Wasn't Hilaire Balok a a poet or something like that? I mean, that's that's how uncool I am. Hilaire, Um, I'm like, what? Is this what seven year olds say? (laughs) 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 So yeah, I'm I'm an uncool mother, that's for sure. But yeah, that's it. We'll never be as cool. We'll never be as cool as a seven year old. That's just it'll never happen. Never again. I know. I'm just like, oh my gosh. So, so yeah, cool so, and brave. Cool wow. and brave, right? That's what, That was the two-word brief that I, when I, I sat down with the partners in the first instance to talk about coming over to uh, to Price and Myers. And, <laughs> and I did. I thought I sat there and thought, I kept a straight face. I'm like, well, I, in my head, I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know what cool really is. And, you know, and, 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 and yeah, the old thing, if you say you're cool, it's the one thing that assures you certainly you are not. Um, but I thought we can be brave. Um, definitely, I can. I can help with a bit of bravery, and yeah. You know, again, it comes back to that tone of voice and that way of writing. Yeah, and that I think way brave kind of, is brave. I yeah. can completely understand. Cool, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Cool just made me question because I'm like, does that mean I go and buy some Converse or? <laughs> <That's> well, like- <laughs> well, what I would say again, not really knowing what cool is, and and not being really able to sort of you know put that into words. But I again, I think engineering as a as a profession suffers from that lack of coolness and architecture can be seen as being cooler, right? If we want engineering to be more diverse, and I really do believe that we do because we can draw a lot of strength from that, we've got to get the kids more excited about engineering when they are younger, when they're, when they're thinking about the STEM subjects, when they're overcoming gender stereotypes that you know, occur in schools between boys and girls, when they are might be from a minority culture in a part of town where you know they don't aspire to um, go to university or to become engineers, if we can make engineering cooler, and we do that like on you know on an individual level, on a practice level, and then on an industry level, that's actually one of the ways that we're going to be able to tackle some of these bigger questions. And I think that's everything from talking about the environment and sustainability and the solutions that we need there, to you know overcoming the preponderance of middle-aged white men in senior management roles. We can't just automatically turn around right now and say, "Oh, okay, right." So um, it's all a, <laughs> it's all a little bit now. it's all yeah. a little bit stale and pale. Um, so <laughs> you know, let's let's get more folks from different cultures in. We've got to bring those people through, and the way to do that is to start appealing to them at seven, right? Like the kids at seven Completely. and eight years of age. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. My son loves rail, trains, engineering. Yeah, exactly. You know. And, you know, I you know, I can I, I can remember growing up as I say I'm a man now in my mid fifties and I can remember growing up with Meccano and Lego and you know, yeah. kids being encouraged to do that up until a certain point and then all of a sudden it was only boys playing with Meccano and girls were off doing, you know, what girls in the sixties and seventies did with, you know, Barbie dolls and all the rest of it. And you know, yeah, we've 
if we can keep or we can make engineering cooler, then we can tap into that that group of younger people that you know are, I think the future of the profession. Do you know, Arab did a video called "Engineers Are Cool" probably about ten years ago. There you go. I know. <laughs> we'll get we'll get there. Did you do it? Was that your video? No, no, I I can't say it was mine. I think it was done by Ben Richardson, who who is amazing. Um, but yeah, it, it, yeah, it was it was very cool at the time, and you were like, oh yeah, they are quite cool. You know, showing all the different diverse areas of engineering and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's the it's the absolute it key. I think it's central to it, and yeah, you know, and I'm not for one moment saying that you know, uh, the price demise is necessarily the coolest um, uh, <laughs> practice on the block yet. But, you know, I think we're getting cooler. And by the time I'm wrapped up, I'd like to think that, you know, price and rise could be chilly, <laughs> like proper sexy. You know, give it 10 years. Okay. I, lo- I look forward to seeing that. Wouldn't, um, it be, wouldn't, it be, but wouldn't it be great if you saw an ad for an engineering practice that was like, you know, a Nike shoe or a Mercedes-Benz car or something like that. You know, I just, I think that we could take brand and just explode it in built environment. I think that would be amazing. I think they'd have to have so much foresight to do it. And actually, do you know what? I did work for Rambol for a while. And one of the interesting things about them was that when they came to the UK as an unknown, when they bought, they bought Whitby Bird and stuff. Yep. What was interesting was Rambol is a household name in Denmark. So they're like one of the top, five companies in the whole country so yeah. that's a very different place to be marketing from like literally you know they've they, they've got a huge head hq by the airport they're, they are, they're a top top five company so they're up there and you're there going that's a whole different ball game to be marketing from when you're you know whereas in the uk you're a relative unknown so yeah it's 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 a it's very very different and it's that, that means yeah. how you approach stuff is very different and i always exactly. find that fascinating and I think too that you know if you're a company like Rambol and you've got that background and indeed Arab. I mean, I know um, Ove was born in Newcastle, but obviously educated in Denmark significantly for you know a large part of his life. Yeah, you know, I'd be drawing on Scandi Cool like it was going out of fashion. I, you know, I'd be trying to, <laughs> I'd be trying to make it look sexy. You know, is this where I go? I'm going to Denmark tomorrow <laughs> on holiday, which, which I am. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Leg- Legoland and then uh, Copenhagen. So, Superb. Uh, yes. Superb. The way to spend the Jubilee. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I agree. <laughs> How do you make engineering cool? Because actually they are cool. I mean, I love engineering. I think they're amazing what they do. And that's why I love marketing engineers. And they always seem yeah. to find me for some reason. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so you had a remote studio concept and – how are you marketing that? I think I saw that on your website, like you're starting to look at setting up a remote studio. What is that? Right. So, well, the, the remote studio is actually an idea that's kind of been burbling around for a while. Um, and and the sort of, you know, the pandemic uh, made it made it a, a logical thing to actually pursue. Um, yeah. we, we have a few clients who deliver us sort of parcels of work. Um, and that can be doing things like um, structural design for artworks, or designing balcony and cladding systems, modular yeah. OSB buildings, even like rear inst- rear extensions, right? And we thought with the sort of the way that work has changed a little bit over the course of the last couple of years, that there was an opportunity for the right people to be able to undertake that work outside the day-to-day studio environment. So we set up the Price and Myers Remote Studio, and it's a, it's a kind of a freelance model, if you like, where yeah. structural, structural engineers with other life demands, you know, whether they be study or family or 
um, relocation or return to work situations or anything like that, that they can actually take these parcels um, at their time and speed and place. Um, at the moment, it's only in the UK for tax reasons, so they have to be located somewhere in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, and then and actually sort of n- knock that work off um, whenever it sort of fits in with their lives, supported by um, you know senior people in our studio in London. Yeah. Um, so we've had a few people um, take that up already. Uh, you know. It's been a fairly light touch campaign. We just put together a little bit of, um, uh, you know, sort of short video for our socials and our website, um, you know, sort of talking about, you know, work from us where, from wherever you like in the UK, work from work for us with, work with us, I should say, any yeah. time of day or night so that it sort of fits around your kids or your study or whatever. Mm. Um, and that, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd be with a safe pair of hands. You'd have some um, guidance and um, quality ch- sort of check from our client's point of view as well. Um, and we've almost filled all of those places. So if anyone listening to your show today is interested, please do get in touch with me. But yeah, it's just an, a, a nice light touch little campaign for an idea that we thought that its time has come and that we could sort of do something that was win, 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 win for our client, win for us, and then win for people that wanted to, you know, sort of do fit their structural engineering profession in around, um, you know, their, their situation. What I like is like you're just trying it. I think some of this stuff, isn't it? You kind of think this is a good idea. Let's just try it out and see. And I think that's the the nice thing, isn't it? It's it's the future. It has to be. It really is. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, good ideas can come from anywhere. um, And it comes back to this notion of being brave. Let's have a crack. Let's see how this goes. We think this makes good sense. Um, We think it's, as I say, it's a win-win-win in this particular situation with the remote studio. Um, but even you know, creating the the animated film for the for the Panda software, you know, there's an investment to be made in that. You know, um, a lot of places that I've worked with wouldn't have done that. They would have they would have balked at that approach. Um, yeah. But there is there is a spirit of bravery um, that has been encouraged in me, and that I am then trying to reiterate and encourage back to the practice um, to sort of yeah, let's try some of these things and and see what works and what doesn't. And I, I, I won't lie, we've tried a couple of things that haven't worked. Um, and you know, we won't be pursuing them again next year, but, um, <laughs> it's, you know, I haven't spent too many thousands of pounds in pursuing things that haven't worked. Yes, you have. Oh, uh, maybe, maybe a few Champagne thousand up the, pounds. Up the, up the, up the gherkin, we know. Um, <laughs> I, I, we were actually, we were actually talking about our, um, our London studio the other day and I sort of made the point, I said, you know, that Facebook does have a 24 hour always on Prosecco tap in their kitchen, you know, and I think that could, that could go down pretty well, couldn't it? At, you know, at Price and Mize London and they're like, no, I don't. No. I, don't really so, <laughs> I mean, cool maybe, but probably too brave. And you're like, in Google, yeah. they've got a running track on their building, right? <laughs> Yeah, but you know, if the running track gets overused, then that's probably not a bad thing. But if the prosecco tap gets overused, <laughs> your productivity <laughs> levels may go down a little bit. I think. And also, I'm not sure about the whole health and safety and design. We, we, we oh yeah, <laughs> you, you know, you're sitting next to one of your colleagues, and it's quarter to ten in the morning, and they're on their second glass of prosecco. I'm, I'm not convinced of uh, the upside of all of that. But anyway, I, you know, Facebook—they'll do what they do, right? <laughs> So I've got a question for you. This is a careers question, which I'm going to ask. Yep. Um, so obviously you've done the rounds, as it were, similar to me, yep. uh, engineering firms and, and, and architectural firms. So any advice to people looking to kind of get to the top of 
these types of firms? What should they be doing? I, I'm a I, I, budding junior person, which I'm not anymore. I think even know. if you're a senior person, <laughs> no, well, exactly right. But, you know, I think even if you're a senior person, you know, if I've sort of got any advice, it's just to never stop listening and to really, really listen. You know, as I said earlier, I think that great ideas can come from anywhere in a business. Um, and in fact, too often, great ideas are not given the time and the currency that they should do because they might be off the cuff from a junior person in a meeting yeah. and aren't properly considered. Um, <clears throat> and I think that they should be. So I think if you don't stop listening, good ideas come from anywhere and also uncomfortable feedback. You know, sometimes I, I, I say to my team that, you know, if you think I've done something wrong or I, I've missed the mark or I haven't held myself up to the standard that I talk about for all of us, you have every right to give me a smack. You can just, you know, I said this even yesterday. Um, you know, I said I'm I'm I've been around a long time doing this for a long time with a lot of really talented people, and I've learned a lot of things, and I want to impart that knowledge on you all as well. But um, you know, it's not a one way process. Uh, oh gosh, no, not anymore. It can't be. You know, it's can't be. There's too Absolutely much to know now. Be. There's just too much to know, and there's so many changes digitally. How things are done. People just trying new models. You know, like. There is this whole, yeah. There's a, it, it's all changing so fast. You can't. That's tell them that's so true. And I, you know, I think the fundamentals of good communications practice r remain. You know, they they are actually fairly static. I mean, you know, the the sort of ideas around empathy and compassion and clarity and you know um, development of you know, mutually successful relationships. And I think that that's that's true whether you're doing comms in 1972 or 2042. But, I wasn't bored. Yeah. I, okay. <laughs> I was free, <laughs> so I wasn't working in comms. But the same. fundamentals, the fundamentals are pretty much the same. Ao, stick with me on this. But you're absolutely right. You know I, what I know about technology and you know changes in culture and changes in audiences. Even you know you think you know audiences, yeah. um, and then you've got some uh, you know younger person in the comms team or an engineer or come and talk to me about somebody that they met at an event, and you think. Oh, okay. So people that maybe don't think like I thought they thought even three years ago. You it's know, changing. It's, it's changing. <laughs> yeah, it's changing so, fast. Yeah. And I think I think that's it. It's 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 changing fast, and it, and and that's the thing. It's it's so hard to keep up. That yeah, you need other yeah. people's kind of input. And you've and got you've got to listen. You've really not just hear. Yeah. You've got to actively listen to people. Um, and I and yeah. So that's that's the strength of I think about how my career has developed. And I, I'm constantly checking myself just to make sure that I'm still doing the things that I say I should be doing. <laughs> Am I um, still and, cool? <laughs> and as I say, and I give permit, I give permission to people to pull me up when uh, I need to be, um, which yeah. you know hopefully isn't too often, but occasionally. Okay, so on to my final final question. So, what one tip would you give to a business leader looking, I guess, to thrive in the rest of 2022? Uh, I love him or hate him. I would like to draw on one of the 21st century's great communicators for inspiration to answer this question. No. Not, no, although I will also agree he is, he is a great, a gifted communicator. But no, not quite as bad as Donald Trump. I'm going to draw on Jeremy Clarkson, if you don't mind. Oh, if that's okay. controversial. Yeah, I know, why? I know. Well, I'm going to tell you why, because I, he, he's a gifted communicator and a, and a very hardworking communicator. And as I certainly, you know, don't agree with everything that he says, and I think he can be a bit of a, be a, bit of a twat. But, um, you know, he had a couple of catchphrases on Top Gear that I'm actually quite fond of, you know, sort of um, bringing into, into 
uh, my work at the moment. And the first of those is, what could possibly go wrong? Um, yeah. And when it comes to growing your business and when it comes to expanding your networks and moving into new markets or, you know, the word pivot was all the rage about two years ago. I don't know how much pivoting people actually did. Um, but, you know, <laughs> ask yourself what could possibly go wrong. Assess your risks, prioritize them in the order of the likely damage if something does go wrong, and then take some of them. You know, risks are a great catalyst for growth. And I think as we stand here in what we're on the doorstep of June 2022, I don't know. Well, what I do know is there's a recession coming. Now, I don't know when it's going to come, but there's always a recession coming. Yeah. Uh, the pandemic may have masked it to some degree already. I don't know, or it might be literally around the corner. But risks are always a great catalyst for growth. And you know, when that in- inevitable recession does arrive, um, it can you know it can set you up actually for the recovery that comes after it. And I know this fits in with the um, with the title of your podcast as well. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that Jeremy Clarkson also says, "How hard could it be?" And you know. <laughs> I've I've sort of found over the course. No, if you want, if anyone out there who's listening to this and watches Top Gear, the old Top Gear, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about because this is Clarkson all the time. You know, know, what could possibly go wrong? How hard could it be? And you know, I found almost in the accent. uh, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Doncaster posh. Um, No, definitely definitely not. But you know, I think over the course of my career, um, yeah. What does it sometimes appear to be really difficult or challenging or sometimes even impossible is often not as hard as it looks or as hard as it seems. And sometimes it is actually, you do it and it is really hard and it is harder than it looks. <laughs> and you are going, why did I do this? Yeah, why did I do this? <laughs> but, you know, get started and adapt. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, we've got, uh, you know, I was talking to a mutual friend, a friend of ours um, on the weekend, Dominique Steindl, and she was saying about how, you know, she's, when a, a business challenge confronts her, that she adapts, thinks around that, and then is absolutely amazed at what serendipity can offer when she keeps on thinking and, and keeps on working. Mm. And I and I think that's absolutely true. So, yeah, I'd say you know assess your risks and take some, and then um, you know jump in. Uh, I, I think that there is a lot of upside to uh, you know what we're Trying confronting things. at the moment, and absolutely. you know, and one of the things that always comes after a recession is a recovery and you want to be really well placed for that on that lovely note thank you so much for being my guest chris that has been my pleasure thank you very much for having me on thanks so much for listening to the latest episode of marketing in times of recovery and i'm your host iowa bass if you want to find out more about the bi-weekly show do check out the show notes which will give you more information about who the guests are and all the things we've covered Uh, And if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on an episode. Until next time. Bye.